this is the Blood Brothers podcast. I'm Rob Parker, filling in for our absentee host, Sean Coleman, with regular voice Chris McDonald and our blood sister, TM Vic Watson. How are you both this evening? You all right? Hello. Are you okay? I'm um, Good. And today we are joined across the joys of uh, international communication, an author who needs scant introduction, although I will try. He sold millions of copies. He's the constant scourge of the New York Times bestseller list. He's been, tra- been translated in more than two dozen languages. It's none other than Mr. Linwood Barclay. How are you, Linwood? I'm just great. How are you guys doing? Good, thank Very you. well. Very well, thank you. Very well. And thank you for um, spending the time with us this evening. We, we realised that, um, as we mentioned just before we came on, we were lucky enough to book this in months and months ago. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was, I think this was the first thing that was even booked for that was timed around the release of the new book. And uh, long before anybody else, you know, even thought about it. So well done. Um, <laughs> I'm... Uh, and in case I, in case anybody wonders, I'm I'm um, I'm in Toronto, so I'm five hours behind you guys. So I'm giving up an afternoon nap for this, you know. So uh, <laughs> did you hear that, gang? We got to raise our game here. We got to be the on joy, point. The joy for me is I've actually already had an afternoon nap today, so I'm totally winning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, superb. And, and of course, you just mentioned the new book. The book in question is Find You First. Um, would you mind, uh, for um, people who've been living under a rock, just giving us a little bit of info about what it's about? Okay, so Find You First, what's well, another thriller? And it's, uh, it's about a guy named Miles, uh, Miles Cookson, who is a kind of, you know, very wealthy tech guy in his early 40s, never been married. And uh, he's uh, been able, he's got so much money he can buy everything he wants, but except time because he's learned that he has a terminal illness. And the doctor says, "Well, you know, it's 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 terrible, but um, it's a good thing you don't have kids because there's a fifty percent chance that if you did, they could inherit this condition." And what the doctor doesn't know, but Miles does, is that you know more than two decades ago he was a sperm donor, so there could be any number of heirs off like offspring out there. And after a lot of soul searching, uh, Miles decides to track down these 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 children of his, because first of all, he'd like to give them a heads up that you know you might want to get yourself tested, and also who's he going to leave all his money to? He's got all this all this money. What's he going to do with it? So as he embarks on this search and has a list of those who are his his possible heirs, they start vanishing one by one, uh, and not just killed, just gone like and every trace of them just gone and that's and that's our jumping off point for uh finding first i mean what's happening is that this is is are one of the other potential heirs whittling away the rest of them so that they'll inherit more is there something far more sinister at play here so that is that's our that's our long-winded elevator pitch for that behind you first. And, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> when are you given well, lessons for elevator yeah. pitches, Linwood? <laughs> yes. Uh, as hooks go, um, I was, um, yeah, caught from the very beginning with this one. Um, this is uh, one of the most Moorish books I've, mm. I've ever read, I think. Vic, we were t- texting, yeah. weren't we, about this, about how it was just... Are you reading this? And how quickly are you reading it? Because it's it's yeah. going very quickly for me because I Mega can't put it out. Like, yeah. Make every excuse possible to pick it up, <laughs> up again. Yes. Yeah. Ignore children. I've had and... really well, <laughs> I've had really long baths this week, so I could sit in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's extremely cool. Can I can I ask where 
the hook here is so strong. Where did the original idea come from? There had been, there was a, uh, I think it was, um, there was an article in the New York Times magazine. Um, and it was really just a photo essay of by someone who had sort of tracked down these half siblings that they had, cause they were all, they were all came from the same Smyrna. So it was just kind of tracking these down and finding the, all these different people that they were related to. And as thriller writers tend to do, I think, well, isn't that lovely, but how could that go horribly wrong? <laughs> and, um, and so I started thinking, and then that was, I think that was the beginning of the idea. And, and then as is often the case, I really needed another story to go with it. And I'm kind of hesitant to get into too much of what it is, but there was another sort of parallel story because at first I started thinking about, well, how will I work this out? And why are all these possible errors disappearing? And, and I didn't like the, the answer that I could come up with. I thought it wasn't good enough. And then I thought I need another story that's going to dovetail with this one. And that's, and once I had that figured out, I started writing. Brilliant. Can I just ask the, the other storyline that you're not really talking about? Um, everyone's going to suspect what it's based on in real life, right? Is, is it yes. meant to be really obvious? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I guess it's okay if we say. I mean, there's, there's a, there's the other storyline is in, in part, sort of inspired by uh, the Jeffrey Epstein story, um, and one story in particular that that came out about him several years ago. That's then, and so that's another tale that's kind of as going along through this as we're kind of jumping back and forth between Miles trying to find you know his possible heirs, and in fact finding you know one of them, a young woman, an aspiring documentarian named Chloe. And he and Chloe kind of together team up and they start looking for the rest. And that's when we find all of them are vanishing. But these these chapters are kind of interspersed with these other chapters about this guy in New York. And, and I think for a long time, we really have no idea what does this story have to do with Miles's story. Yeah. And, and we're gradually heading towards this kind of intersection of where these two, two stories are going to come together. Amazing. Um, please can I ask about your writing process because you talked about having one story and then thinking about the other are you a massive planner or or do you kind of see what, how it goes well I'm kind of both I mean now they talk about it, you know they, the, the cliche is are you a plotter or a pantser one who plots everything out or you, do you go by the seat of your pants and I'm kind of sort of falling between in that I know the big picture I know who did what. I know what the foundation of the story is. I know what the machinery behind the background is that's driving the story. And I really know where I want to end up. So I know I can see where I'm going. Um, but, um, and I, but I don't see the opportunities that maybe exist in the story until I get into the middle of it. And so, so it's kind of like, you know, you, if you're, you're getting on a, you're going on a driving trip between New York and LA. And you know where you're going to end up in LA, but there are a hundred different ways you can get there, and you can veer off that highway and go this way and that way. But eventually, you came back, come back onto this line that's taking you to LA, and that's pretty much the way I work. So, so like I know where I'm going, I know who's done what, and this is kind of a lesson I learned a long time ago when I was when I was working with an agent on my the first novel I had that got published, and I had three quarters of it done, and she had read it and she said. She's, she's very good with plot. She likes to know things. So she said, who did it? And I said, well, it's either, she said, stop. She, she said, figure out the whole rest of it first and then get back to me. 
And so I, so I kind of like to know what, who I like to know who everybody is and what their motivations are and what they've done. Because when you're jumping from head to head, from character to characters, right? Dialogue. Mm -hmm. I want to know if the character whose head I'm in right now is lying. Mm -hmm. And, and so I like to know those sorts of things, but there's a lot of stuff. I always describe the, the, the middle of a book as sort of what I call the big mushy middle. You know, a lot of times we start off, we know our sort of first 80 pages, what's going to happen. We know we're ending, but what the hell are we going to put in the middle of this book? And that stuff, I don't know until I get into it. That's and, amazing. And do you write in, in the way that it would eventually come out in the book in terms of you write different points of view and then you switch back to someone else? Or do you write all of one person's point of view and then somebody else's? Oh, no, I got to write it in, in a more linear way. Like yeah. I'm jumping from, you know, I mean, I couldn't, I, it, I mean, that's how you'd make a movie, you know, mm -hmm. like you'd shoot all the scenes with one person and then you'd edit yeah. them all together. But that's not the way I could write. I, I need to be, because there's, I need to be telling the story, except in this book, we kind of start with a flash forward, but, but generally I want to tell it in the sequence in which it's happening. Absolutely amazing. That um, that bit of advice from your agent early on there, would you say that was one of the most, you know, it seems kind of a formative piece of advice that has stayed with you almost? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was very helpful. Um, you know, and I was, like I said, I was writing that book in probably 2002, I think, 2003. Um, that became a book called Bad Move, which is the first of four books I wrote about a character named Zach Walker. So I was starting out but i mean you know 20 books later i'm still learning like i still can make all kinds of new mistakes but i like to know i do like to know what's going on and i mean i, I learned another huge lesson around book six or so um i'd had a i'd had a huge hit that came out in the uk a book called no time for goodbye back in 2008 i think it was and or nine anyway and um I was writing about a couple of books that would come after that. And I wrote a novel and the whole time I was going through it, I thought, well, I know there's a problem, but I'll, I'm sure I can fix it later. And I just kept writing, even though this little voice in the back of my head was saying, there's a problem here. And I wrote the whole book and I gave it to my agent and she read it and she said, wow, what a holy mess this is. And, uh, <laughs> and so and she said, you know, she said, this book is publishable, but, after a hit like No Time for Goodbye, you can't go out with a book that's just okay. And and so I, that was another really valuable lesson, which was if you hear the voice in the back of your head that says there's a problem, stop. And this time I, I learned that. And that book, I never, I never didn't even try to fix that book. That book, I never rewrote it. I never tried to fix it. I just thought the hell with it. And I thought I, I can't fix this book. It's Because she had said to me, knowing how quickly you work, you could write another book from scratch in less time than it would take to, to rewrite this. So that was, there was a couple of very big lessons along the way, you know, know where you're going. And if you hear the voice in the back of your head saying there's a problem, uh, regroup, stop. Frantically taking notes here. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. How long does it take you to write a, a first draft? Usually two and a half to three months. Um, mm. I do, I try to write uh, about 2000 words a day when I'm in the thick of writing a book. So that's 10,000 words a week. So in two and a half months, you've got yourself a you know, 100,000 word book, you've got a first draft. And depending on how you know that good that first draft is will determine how much more time I've spent on it. I mean, I had no time for goodbye was like lightning in a bottle. I mean, that I did very little rewriting on that book. And I wrote that book in eight weeks. Uh, and then I had to take a book like the, like you take a book like the, the accident 
or um, a tap on the window books I did a few years ago, I probably spent more time rewriting them than I did on the first draft because they just needed a ton of work. So that's so it varies, but but the first draft is generally two and a half to three months. Wow. It's absolutely mind blowing that um, a book that I hold in such high esteem was written in eight weeks. It's just, it just breaks my heart in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, the thing is, I mean, don't feel that way. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, I should, you know, I should background that with, I mean, I spent, um, I spent 30 years working in newspapers. And so writing is a job and you sit down and you go to work. I mean, if you, if you, as I've said many times, if you work at a newspaper and you say to the, to the editor, you know, the muse just didn't strike today. So I didn't do a story. I didn't write, I didn't go to that accident or I didn't write that column because I just didn't feel it. You know, they'd say, well, leave. Um, you know? <laughs> so, so I do, so I view uh, writing a book like a job. You know, you get up and you, just, and you get it done. And and I try to choose, I try to pick a time of year when I know I'm not doing any traveling, much traveling or touring or all that. So I can kind of do it all in a chunk. I don't have a huge interruption, which should mean that in the last year, I could have written like five of them. <laughs> yes. But uh, but in normal times, I try to pick a time, say from like from, January to April or this past year because of the situation. I mean, I did a book from September to Christmas. So, but I think that, that having worked in a newspaper influences a lot of, of that kind of work ethic. It's, it's a job, you know. We've heard that a few times with other um, ex-journalists that we've spoken to, that it really prepared them well for yeah. um, mm. not so much, you know, the, but not, not just the, um, the habit of writing and viewing it in that way, but also working with words all the time helped to hone, constantly helped to hone. Yeah, it's a couple of things. One is, is um, you know, deadlines mean everything when you work in a newspaper. You can't, you just simply can't be late. Uh, there's just no, it can't happen. And so, and I've had lots of experience with that. So, so deadlines mean everything. I've, I mean, I've never delivered a book late. In fact, I've always delivered early. And, um, although it's funny, I was mentioned that to Ian Rankin one time and he said, Oh, don't ever do that. Cause if you deliver early, it gives them, gives your editors more time to muck about with it. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but I've always ended up delivering early and, uh, because that's just the way I train. But the other aspect I think of having worked in a newspaper is ha- working in a newspaper, working in the media is like a crash course in the world. So you just, learn how everything kind of works because, you know, one day you went to a fire and the other day you went and covered a, a town council meeting. The other day you interviewed some TV star, whatever. but you just kind of through osmosis, you just start learning all kinds of stuff. So at least for me, when it comes to writing, I think, well, you know, every once in a while I hit something, well, I have to learn how that works. I don't know that, but, but generally you kind of know the machinery of the world. So that has a tremendous help that way. After so many books, um, do you still get excited when you sit down with on day one of the new one? Excited is probably the wrong <laughs> word. Uh, <laughs> Filled with terror. <laughs> enormous dread and doubt. I mean, I have a lovely, I have a, I have a friend, a guy named Tom Straw, who's become a good friend, who's a, 
well-known writer and TV writer, producer stuff. And he said, I just, this, I love this so much. I wrote it down and put it on a sticky on my computer. He said, somebody asked him, what's it the other day? He said, what's it like to be a writer? Thinking, you know, wow, just the mobs of attention. Um, but they said, what's it like to be a writer? And he said, it's a constant war with doubt. And I thought, that's so perfect. You know, it really is perfect. And so when I start a book, I mean, it's a little exciting. So if you get that first chapter, the prologue, and I think, yeah, I think this is working. Um, but an even better feeling is finishing. Yeah. And uh, although I always find that once you send a, a, a draft, first draft to your publisher, that's like waiting to get tests back from the doctor's office. Uh, <laughs> it's like, how bad is it going to be? <laughs> I mean, am I, am I going to be fine? Am I going to live? Or is it going to be bad? So that's, a, I find that somewhat, I mean, that's, I'm in that moment at the very now, right now, because I delivered um, the 2022 book first week of January. And I've heard that my editors in New York and London, you know, really like it, but I'm still waiting for the notes to come. That'll say, yes, we love it. It's always, Oh, we just love it. But, and, (laughs) and see what has to be done. So. And is that, is that usually how far ahead you write Linwood, that you're a a year as it were in advance? Yes. You tend to, I mean, those of us who are on a book a year regimen, you know, because a lot of us who write, crime and thrillers like you know whether it's michael conley or lee child or whoever it happens to be everyone the public sort of is like well we want the new whatever this summer to take to to on our trip so those of us who are on that kind of a schedule uh tend to deliver around the time that a book comes out so i had a book come out in the uk on, on february 4th i delivered a new book to them uh around january 5th so so it's usually about a year and it takes a year, you know, cause it's, there's, there are so many things that are involved. I mean, you know, obviously you're going to have editing work to do on it. And then there's who, what are we going to do for a cover and how are we going to market it? So there's a lot involved. So a lot of it, thankfully, I don't have to think about, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like stuff that you don't even consider. Like, like I remember this sort of dawned on me the other day that, or a few years ago, but yes, now we're just uh, dealing with, you know, the supermarkets and Asda and Tesco and so forth, because it's not like they've got an infinite number of slots on their shelf, yeah. you know, in their store for books. You've got to get one of them. You've got to get in there. You've got to get into that store. And, you know, it's great if you've got your book all ready to go. And, 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 and all the supermarkets say, well, you know, we've got a, a rack that'll hold 50 books, the top 50. Uh, sorry, you know, we're, we're all full up. And so... All those sorts of things, you know, so I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Oh, man, I, I remember when, when it happened in, in the UK, you know, like, um, always being a book fan, but then suddenly the supermarkets started stocking, like, a decent amount of books. Mm. And, the, like, it blew my mind for a start that I could go and get the latest books in supermarkets. But it's changed the game over here yeah. so hugely. Mm. And and yeah. fighting for supermarket um Space <laughs> is a real thing, isn't it? Thanks, Vic. <laughs> Staring into space. Oh, dude. But yeah, it's a massive <laughs> thing, you know, like, um, it's incredible. Well, it's like, you know, when, when I mean, when they find you first was coming, came out in hardcover on the fourth. And of course, given the pandemic, you know, physical bookstores like a Waterstones and, and a lot of those, yeah. they're not, they're not open. So where the number of places where you can get a book is limited. And we thought, well, Grocery stores don't carry a whole lot of hardcovers. They carry mostly paperbacks. But 
they carried my hardcover. Like they, they ordered it and I thought, phew, because that's without that we'd, you know, at a time like this, we'd be sunk. Absolutely. And, and speaking of a, a time like this, you know, um, how has not, you know, no, no sort of, uh, nitty gritty personal questions but like how about the don't laugh at me guys i'm usually the one that puts my foot in it all the time on this linwood but i'm talking about no i mean how how has covid and and the lockdowns etc been with you and your writing have you been able to get a lot done or has it been a huge because i know some writers that have found it like um it, it's it's just brought down a blanket of a mental block like creative no. juices have just gone. What about, how's it been for you? No, that didn't happen. Thankfully uh, for me, because first of all, I find one thing I find very motivating are contracts. And so <laughs> if you have a contract to supply a book, you think, well, you know, can it coronavirus or not? I've got to, I got to put out a book. So that wasn't a problem. Um, you know, and, you know, I know I have at least one friend. I know one friend who's who has written a, has written another book through the through the pandemic because he just had time to do it and got ahead. But I didn't do that. But I mean, I I you know I suppose you could think, well, I got all I got time. I can't go and do anything else. Might as well write another book. But um, I haven't done that. I did I did the one from September to Christmas. I've had a bit of other stuff to do. I did several drafts on a screenplay that Jason Priestley wants to do. We'll see if it happens, but you know, that, that worked on that. Um, and a couple of other, you know, there's been a, a uh, I wrote a series of books about a place called promise falls yes. and there's been a promise falls series in development since the dawn of time, I think. <laughs> and um, there was a bit of work to do on that. So I had stuff to do. And then of course, because I'm just a complete uh, total nerd, I've, you know, in between times and, and especially through the cold weather here in the winter, you know, I'm a model train nut. I have a massive layout in the basement. So I went and worked on that. I did a ton of that in February and January. So, you know, it's been okay. I mean, the question that everybody seems to want to ask is, is will the subject of the pandemic get into your work? And, and that's, that's a kind of bigger question in some ways is how to deal with that. Um, at the moment, you know, the book I've written for 2022, I have written with the with the you know hesitant assumption that we'll be past this, but I've referenced it because it's it's part of history now. So yes. you know, the guy's got a, got some old masks in the glove compartment or whatever. So we it referenced cool. that it happened, yeah. but you know you sort of think, well, geez, will people shake hands in books in the future? Should I just set every book now in 2019? Do I want to write a book about the pandemic? And I my answer is no because first of all. 900 other authors are probably thinking, oh, I should write a pandemic book. And, and so everybody might do it. And, and on top of that, in like 1979, Stephen King wrote The Stand. So why bother? It's been done. <laughs> um, and it's been done really well. So, but it's, it, there are considerations about, <clears throat> I, mean, I mean, if you were writing a book that was set in, you know, in, in 1950 or the late 40s, people might reference the war, you know, and so it's part of our it's part of our collective history now. So I think it'll find its way, even incidentally, into into the books. You um, you mentioned Promise Falls there. So just to jump on that, Rob Scrag, who's a fantastic author, has sent two questions about Promise Falls. Uh, question one was: Are there any plans to go back there? Not at the moment. I did 
I did a promise, what I call the Promise Falls trilogy, which was three books that were really linked. That were big, like one big long story. That was Broken Promise, Far From True, and the Twenty Three. And then I did follow that up with another Promise Falls book called Parting Shot. Um, and there are a couple of earlier books that took place in Promise Falls, like um, Never Look Away and Too Close to Home. Um, but after Parting Shot, I kind of thought, I think I'm really kind of done with Promise Falls, at least for now. I don't have any current plans to go back to it. Uh, part of it was I was I was kind of shifting from one publisher to another. Uh, and the new publisher I had said, look, these are great books, but if you're going to come, like, why don't you do something different? With uh, so we can, and that and the first non-Promise Falls book uh, for a while was a book called A Noise Downstairs, and since then there's been A Noise Downstairs, Elevator Pitch, um, Far From It's all been pure standalones since then. And then question two: When he sent this, part of me thought is this Virgin on Creepy, but you've mentioned your model railway thing, so I assume that's sort of public knowledge. Yeah, I, know I, if he had, like, I didn't know if he had some sort of weird. Thing that he had. No, it would, be, it would probably be, you know, sometimes it would be easier to just tell people, I have this huge porn collection. <laughs> and then, and people, people would say, yeah, I, I get that. I have, so do I, you know. I got, well, you come over, I'll show you mine. But if you're going to say, I have this huge monorail, and they think, wow, that's weird. I'm gonna just, I'd rather just talk to the guy with the porn collection. But, um, but yes, carry on with your question. So he said, um, the promise falls felt like such a complete world that you built um, and he wanted to know have you ever built like a model of it? No. There no, we go. Nice. I, 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 no, I haven't. Um, uh, I, did, I did draw a plan of it when I was writing the first the Promise Falls books. I did draw a, a detailed map that we actually ran in one of the um, you know the advanced copies. Um, so I kind of knew when my characters were going driving around town where they were relative to each other thing but no, I haven't done that. Um, what I find about about working on the model railway is that you, know, you spend your whole day inventing a world in your head, and then to build one with your hands is kind of therapeutic. It's it kind of it's it allows you to kind of roll out other stress and everything kind of dissipates when you do that to have, do something that you do. It, it's a that's a totally hands on kind of a thing. But I don't wear a hat. I don't wear an engineer's hat. <laughs> I would do not do that. And if anybody wants to get one for me, I will throw it out. <laughs> well, you were going to say, if anyone wants to get me one, I'd be really grateful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I do not want one. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned uh, a moment ago about um, your work with um, film. Um, and um, your 2011 thriller, The Accident, was turned into a six-part series um, in France. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to uh, attempt an accent. To... L'accident? Yeah, I did, l'accident. I did attempt yeah. it. L'accident, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and you adapted your own novel as well. Adapting your own novel, how on earth was that? Because I look at my novels and I'm like, I, whoa, I don't even want to. You know, like even the prospect no, of condensing that it's... down is amazing. And- and I've had, you know, I've had uh, the act when they did the accident in France, which, by the way, they did a very nice job on. I have to mm. say, I thought. Uh, I think it's still on. There's a, a streaming service. I think it's over there called Acorn. It's all on there um, still. And and they they were really faithful to it. I, I, we went over for the last couple of days of the shoot, and they did a lovely job on it. And then I had a chance. I wrote a. I adapted my novel Never Saw It Coming for a film that got shot in Canada, and we still can't seem to get it seen outside of Canada. But. Um, 
Eric Roberts is in it, and uh, Emily Hampshire, who people might know from Schitt's Creek, who, who runs the motel. So that got made, but that was a good experience to do that. That was my first screenplay, and then I've had lots of experience writing them since. They just haven't been made yet or won't or whatever. I mean, I spent six months writing 12 drafts for a, a possible series based on my novel, Trust Your Eyes, and which, you know, at the very last minute, I, ITV decided not to do it. And so it was, it was going to be done in England. And, and then I've been working on the Promise Falls stuff. And I've written, I've written my own, I've written an adaptation from my book, Fear the Worst, which is the one that Jason Priestley has expressed interest in doing. So it's, the thing is, um, when I, let's talk about Never Saw It Coming. When I adapted that, um, I first, I started looking at the book thinking, oh, you know, how am I going to do this and so forth? And finally, I just kind of threw the book away. Um, because you, when you're writing a, a screenplay based on anybody's book, whether it's your own or somebody else's, you're kind of just sifting it down to its essence. And, um, and so I would look in the book and I think, well, I know this chapter is this, all this stuff has to happen, but I'm taking like 12 pages to do it. And I know I need to do it in a screenplay in a page and a half. So I stopped looking at the book and just thought, who needs to say what to get that across? Right. And so, and of course, the other thing that was great was that, you know, you look through your own book and you think, well, here's four pages of somebody just thinking about something. Well, that's gone. <laughs> and here's, here's, here's four pages of backstory. I don't need that. And so I was kind of merciless about it and, and not precious because a movie is such a different thing than, than a book. And, um, you know, so I think your, your, your goal is to do, make us write as good a movie as you can, not be faithful to the book. In fact, in all the workings I've done working on this possible Promise Falls series, I've, in the early stages, I've suggested all kinds of changes from the novel. Um, because as I, some of these changes that I suggested, I thought if I had thought of these when I was writing the novels, I would have done this instead. So you have to just look at, at, a, at a movie or a TV show as a kind of springboard from the book. It's like, we're taking this kernel of an idea that was in the book and we're going to just jump, go with it. But it may bear not a whole lot of resemblance. I was, I was talking to somebody who had, who knows a woman who wrote, whose book was turned into an HBO series. I won't say which one or whatever, but she said she had to watch the show to find out how it would end because it was so drastically different. I mean, you kind of reach, it's just kind of reached point. Listen, if the check clears, then whatever. Yes. <laughs> I think I think this is an industry that you can't be precious in either. You know, like of your oh, own work. Oh, for sure. And I, and I, yeah. you know, the thing is, when I was fifteen years old, fourteen, fifteen, almost through my teens, all I wanted to do was be a writer for television. I, I thought, oh God, I'd love to do that. I'd love to write, you know, Mission Impossible scripts and all that kind of stuff. I'd just love to do that. And and uh, as that didn't happen, you know, I ended up going to newspapers. So. And now that I have the opportunity to do it, um, it's it's not as fun as I thought it would be because, you know, when I read a novel, first of all, when you write a novel, you have a, you know, it'll come out. Whereas when you work on TV stuff, like who knows, it might come out, it might not come out. There's a million, very many million things that could impact them on it, not coming out. And you also have so many more people who weigh in and have suggestions and want to do this one or that. So it, the actual writing of a screenplay is, is great fun. I just love it. It's really fun. Um, but all the other stuff is makes it a little more frustrating. 
Can I um, ask you, because I'm going to go back to No Time for Goodbye, and something that's really prevalent in your writing, Linwood, is the audacity of the twists. And that was the thing that I really loved about No Time for Goodbye, but also the subsequent books as well. At the time, did you have trouble getting that through your agent, your editor, your publisher, or were they on board with it? Oh, oh, well, I'm not sure what twist there would would have been that you might have thought they would object to. Um, I think the publishers are thrilled to have twists that they like that, you know, as long as they make sense, Mm -hmm. you know, as long as you're not, you're not, as long as you're not doing something just for the sake of a twist, just to sort of, you know, um, but if it makes sense, sort of, I hate this cliche, but if it makes sense sort of organically with the story that, you know, twists are often really not so much twists as they're just a case of withholding information earlier on. Yeah. And it's a, it's kind of a sleight of hand. It's like a card trick. I mean, it's all happening in front of you, but we're just going to distract you with something that's going on over here, so you don't see what we're actually doing with the cards. And and so that's what a lot of times twists are. I mean, the story itself is just there, and it's not necessarily twists, but it's how you peel the onion and how you unravel things and so forth. I mean, there's I think a fairly significant twist in the new book, Find You First that comes about three quarters or two thirds of the way through. And I knew from page one that it was coming. And it's just a way of how you're going to reveal that information and, and, and the way you time it and the way you choose to do it. And that is seen by everybody. Wow. What a twist, but it's really just a kind of sleight of hand thing. A lot of times. It's just when you reveal it really, isn't it? it really is. And it's, and it's also a case of misdirection. It's like, We'll want to, as a, you know, we want to read, lead the reader to look this way and to think this way and to be doing this. And you sort of, so you're giving them information that's kind of bogus or whatever, just to sort of they're looking over at this little shiny light over here. And then you bring out this thing over to on the other side and, and think, oh my God. And so that's, that's something I've always tried to do. Um, I had to tell you what was really, when I, before I started writing books, before writing crime novels, going back to a couple of the early uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies, whatever, like The Sixth Sense and um, Unbreakable and Signs, which I think are, are, are three really good movies. I really love those movies, all three of them. Can we throw The Village in there? Would you accept no, The Village can't. in there? No, we can't. No, 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 not even for a second will we throw no, The Village in there. No, man. Not a chance. Um, but the first three, those three, I think, and Unbreakable is by far is my favorite. Actually, love yeah. that movie. So, so I look at what he did, and I thought it's all like you look at the Sixth Sense, and it's all there in front of you, like it's all there. He doesn't, he, you know, and and when you rewatch it, you see how he fooled you, but it was very, very so cleverly done, and and the same is true of the others, and it's the it's the planting of what seems to be unimportant information that, but it's there, you know, in signs, the, the girl leaving her glasses of water all over the house and so forth. And it's those. And I thought, I thought those were very, very clever movies in the, and, and another one around way back in the early 2000s, I think was, was influential in terms of the way he develops a story is JJ Abrams. Cause I was looking at things like, um, like going back to alias, you know, mm. and and the third Mission Impossible movie, which J.J. Abrams did, which is where he takes a really dramatic moment 
and leads with it. And he gives yeah. it to you right at the beginning. And then after three or four minutes, you know, that scene ends. And then we see the little thing that says like 48 hours earlier or three days earlier or yeah. whatever. Because he realizes that we're also have such immense attention deficit problems <laughs> that if he tells that story linearly in the order that everything happened, we're going to fall asleep by 20 minutes because nothing's happened. So he has to give you something huge at the beginning to grab you by the lapels and shake you and said, you better hang around because this is what's coming. And I think both of those are really interesting kind of techniques. And I do think that a lot of times as writers of novels, that's our competition, our series that you can binge watch, that you can consume like a book, chapter after chapter after chapter. And we think, what can we write to get your attention so you won't watch all of Broadchurch tonight? You know, what can we what can we give you that will take you away from that? Such a good point. Man. Um, I think that um, what you mentioned there about um, misdirection, I think when you when you're doing misdirection in a book as well or any kind of storytelling, um, you're asking the the audience, reader, whatever, to invest more time in that world. And the more time that you in, uh, the audience invests, the greater hooks uh, the, you've got the hooks in by the time that you do do the switcheroo. So yeah. It, yeah, it's um, it all serves a purpose, and I love that. And I, I think I think Shyamalan, you know, yeah, he it, certainly the way has gone since a little bit. He's coming yeah. back round. He's coming back round. Yeah, but um, the, I, I think he's so underappreciated. I love that guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think is I can say I think he lost his way there for a while. Um, but those first three, like I've watched all of those movies multiple times. Those first three. Uh, and uh, and the village, no. And... <laughs> I love the village. You plotted your uh, car uh, there, Rob. <laughs> I don't, no, no, no. Uh, you know, look at that. What's behind me? There's a, a Van Damme poster behind me. I mean, <laughs> I'm not trying to impress anybody here, guys. Just <laughs> <This> as well. <laughs> Uh, Vic, you had uh, another question, I think. I did. Um, going back to when you first started writing books, I believe you were still working as a journalist. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, did you use, because you write thrillers, did you find that some of the, the gorier or darker stories you were covering as a journalist inspired your writing? Well, first of all, when I was, I spent a, a large part, like starting in 1981, I joined the Toronto Star, which is the largest circulation paper in Canada. But I was hired, I went in to get a reporting job, and they said, we don't really need reporters. We're desperate for good editors and copy editors. Do you have a lot of editing experience? And I said, uh, sure. <laughs> um, you know, a lie. And and I got hired to work on the desk, and I was really good at it. And so for the next 12 years, I was a copy editor, assistant city editor, news editor. Uh, I was, you know, although I did all, all those things. And, and then I started writing a column in uh, 1993, but it was allegedly a humor column. So I wasn't out going out covering things and so forth, mm-hmm. but, but I was immersed in it all the time, even if it wasn't a story I was covering mm-hmm. and bad move. The very first of the Zach Walker books um, is in part uh, inspired by an event that I worked on as an editor um, very early in my career, about a young girl who had been disappeared and was murdered. And so a lot of that kind of carried over into it. And there's, but I think that just the experience of what it's like at a newspaper certainly finds its way through the first four Zach books, which are sort of comic thrillers. 
Um, but there, there weren't a lot of specific incidents that I was in any way involved in that, that further, you know, that made their way into my books. I think newspapers just taught me how to write, uh, how to work quickly, how to be serious about it. Um, you know, deadlines and how not to be precious, you know, cause in newspapers, I mean, everything gets ripped to pieces and, um, and it also, you know, the thing is it taught me how to, it did teach me how to work quickly and how to how to rewrite quickly. I mean, I can remember a night when we had a major story that landed at 7.30 in the evening. It had to be done by 10. It had to be off the floor. It had to be getting pasted up and ready to roll off the presses by 10, 10.30. And at 7.30, the story's a mess. This is like a 2,000-word story, and it's the most important story of the day. And I sat down with the reporter, and we rewrote that story from beginning to end in an hour. And so... That's what I learned how to do. And so, and that's the way I always had to work. So it's funny because when I was working on the Trust Your Eyes um, possible screenplay, and I was working with Martin Campbell, who directed the Casino Royale and so forth, and I would be on a big conference call, and there would be like 100 suggestions of things that they wanted to fix with the script. And then I get off the phone with them, and I would just do them, and I would send it to them the next day. And they were like, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> which, well, it's like, we were expecting that in like 10 days. And I thought, well, what the hell? I mean, it's just, it's just work. Just do it. And, and I said, that's the only way I know how to work because that's what I did in newspapers. But, but as far as your question about any specific events sort of working their way in, not too much. Yeah. Like these long-winded answers, you ask yes. a simple question. I could have no, just said no. <laughs> I could have said no, and then he just blathers on for like half an hour. No, this is it. We, we offer a thorough listener experience. Anyway, so, okay, you know, this right. is it. <laughs> um, Chris, do we have any uh, questions from um, our listeners online? Yes, uh, we've covered some of them. Um, Kevin Hill asked, is there publishing pressure to change locations from Canadian places to American? That's probably from somebody in Canada, I'll bet. Um, not pressure, no, but it's there's an interesting story. that It's funny, when you live in Canada and are Canadian, and, and I'm actually a dual citizen. I was born in the U.S., but I've lived in Canada since I was three, and when my parents moved up here. But there's Canada has very touchy about being next to the U.S. So if you're Canadian and you could set your story in any country in the world, they're okay with it. But if you set it in the U.S., they get annoyed. And and so, but the, here's the thing is, you know, when I started writing thrillers, I couldn't get a Canadian publisher. I didn't have a Canadian publisher until book seven. And so, but I had written thrillers, and the and I had a U.S. publisher that wanted to publish them. And it was like, well, you dance with the one what brung you, you know? And so, and now I have a wonderful Canadian publisher, and I've had wonderful Canadian publishers since like 2010. But when I started doing this, they weren't interested. And so that's sometimes what, you know, can happen. Um, so, but it's, it's, I don't know. The other thing, of course, is that these people in my novels do her terrible, horrible things to other people. And Canadians are Canadians are too polite to do that. Um, <laughs> if you're, you know, I mean, someone asked you the other day, is the Canadian edition any different than the U.S. edition? They said, well, it's pretty much the same, except when the killer uh, kills somebody, they say, "I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, Chris? 
Um, yes, there's one more. Um, we've kind of talked about screenplays and stuff, but is there a book that you've read at any time that you thought I'd love to see that on screen or to see how it would be brought to life? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, just off the top of my head, I can think of a couple of great thrillers that I've read in the last couple few years that I think would make good movies. One is I am Pilgrim. Which tipped by Terry Hayes, which is I just I think was the best thriller I'd read in the last decade. It was so good, and I think uh, I'd like to see I'd love to see a movie based on Stephen King's The Institute because I thought that was just fantastic. That book, um, you know, he's kind of amazing because he's you know we keep thinking of all the early stuff, whether it was It and and um, The Shining and all stuff. But, I mean, he's been cranking out some amazing stuff in more, in more recently, and I think The Institute was just a terrific book. Hi, I'm Rob. I'm Simon. And I'm James. We want to talk about those movies, those supposedly bad movies, those movies that bombed. To see if they weren't that bad after all, join us every other Tuesday on the For Your Reconsideration podcast, part of the Pod Dojo Podcast Network. You can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, and all your usual podcast apps. And it won't cost you a solitary bean, mate. <laughs> it's like it's free. <laughs> it's just like it's free. <laughs> and then we, I mean, you give the village a rather scathing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> would, it, would it be fair to say that, would you give it one star? Oh, I don't know. What's less than that? I mean, it's... <laughs> It's, no, you know, it's, that's <laughs> the village starts. The village really does start off. You know what the village is? The village is a is a thirty minute Twilight Zone episode. That's what it is, because it's got that kind of a level of a twist. And if you can't see the twist coming, you're just not paying attention. And I mean, when they say, <laughs> "Oh, we're going," I didn't see it. <laughs> when that one character says, "Of that," says we're going to have to go. And find the medicine that helps him with his his moods. I thought, oh, there you go, you know, <laughs> there it is. Like it was just oh, so no. obvious. And and <laughs> there was a reviewer on TV in the states who reviewed that movie so well. In one line, he said, "The first hour of the village, you're wondering what else, what can possibly be happening, and in the second hour of the village, you find out nothing's happening." <laughs> and that was just perfect, perfect review. This um this was sort of my link into a game rather than just wanting to give the village a kicking. Um, we, <laughs> we play um play a game, <laughs> we, play, we play a game called one star or five star where um I've looked at someone who's given one of your books a one star review, which I'm not gonna read out. There aren't many, um based on the the ratios, but I've picked one person um and I've looked at what else they've reviewed. I've picked three items that they've also reviewed, and all you two need to do is tell me whether they loved it or hated it. Okay, okay. I think I get this. <laughs> I have to tell you, there was there was a lovely one star review a few years ago. Uh, the thriller writers at their Thriller Fest conference uh, they had a contest for finding the worst Amazon review you'd ever had, and I was sure I would win because. Um, Someone had reviewed the bad move, the first Zach book, and said, this is the first book I've read where I was really hoping that the protagonist, the main character, would be killed by chapter two. <laughs> and I thought, surely I'll win this. But Lee Child won. And his review that we all loved was someone said of his books, I have 
I have read and hated every one of your books, <laughs> but I hate this latest one the most. I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I, I adore these people. Yeah, I adore I them. But in fairness, in fairness, Rob Parker would just say it well, but you read and you buy every one of my books. I know. So I got my yeah. I've, read, I've read every last one of your books and hated them all. You know, like, yeah. I don't know. I'm so sorry Nothing to hear all the that. Way to <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for supporting my career so diligently. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right, so the first item today is a golden ire, and I'm going to say it says luxury stainless steel analog watch. Luxury, it was 32 quid. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not snooty, that's nice. but that's that's think of our labels here. So, did they love the luxury watch or not? Oh, I, I mean, it's, I, I'm not sure if I'm understanding this game, but I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm going to say, Listen, this room, I mean, I'm just ignoring you. Uh, what I'm just going to say is, is, that, is, that, is that one time I got this like one star review or no, a two star review from somebody and, and, and I looked to see what else they had reviewed. Right. And so they had reviewed like two books and then a Dyson vacuum cleaner and some sort of electric can opener. And so the electric can opener, I think got one star, but my book got two. So I thought, okay, my book is better than that can opener. <laughs> <laughs> so was That's, it was it better it. than a watch? I don't I don't I don't know. Was this is this someone who reviewed one of my books and the watch yeah. got a better review than mine? Well, well that is the thing that I think that the watch probably got what did better. Okay. I I I'm going to say no it's one star for the watch. I I think the watch could not have done better. No, it didn't. It did the same. It got one star. Um, it says the hands got stuck on the first day. The watch is useless, and it looks good in the bin. There you go. Hey, <laughs> so, God, who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, love I I really like the Amazon reviews where they give your book one star because uh, the mailman, the, the post left it on the step, and it got wet. Yeah. 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 Or like uh, not not delivered to my Kindle. That's star. right. Was delivered. Yes, one star. Yeah. Oh, I downloaded this by accident. That's you know. right. Oh, I love that one. Yes. That's <laughs> yeah. Right. Essentially, because that's know, my fault. Yeah. Rating your own searchability. Well, that's <laughs> right. I got I got a one star. I wrote two thrillers for kids, and I and and somebody reviewed them and gave them a one star review because they said I didn't realize this was a thriller for kids, so I giving it one star. Years years ago, years ago, I swear, somebody will rip this off now because I'm going to say it. Years ago, <laughs> I was sitting with my agent, kind of think of of things to what I might write next, and I said, "What if you had an author who tracked down the people who gave them one star reviews and he killed them?" I had um, I had a. I think I might live it. I had a bad one-star review uh, from a fellow author when I was first starting out, Linwood. No. And, um, I'm really yeah. sorry about that, okay? Like, I'm <laughs> <it down>. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was, it was massive. Um, and it was a huge personal takedown from another author. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um, yeah, it was so cool. And I thought he was coming for me, like, personally as well. Actually. So, cool. so this, <laughs> without, getting to, without getting into names, this isn't going back to the famous sock puppet incident, is it? What's the, uh, no, it's not. It's not. Okay. No, 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 All right. No. 
Uh, for a start, I'm not that big, so <laughs> no, he wasn't that. But um, no, he made actually. I have this habit, Linwood, of uh, making one star review mugs. So this guy got his own mug all by himself. Oh wow! Oh nice, so, very yeah. nice. So, but, um, I really thought that he was going to come for me. Um, so yeah, it was a very cool, cool period in my career. That one. <laughs> I love the fact that the handle on that mug is broken as well. There's been a bit like of overuse that. on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Chris, uh, is, do you have another item? I've got one more item, to. yes. Let's um, do it. So this person uh, bought 100% UK wildflower seeds uh, to make a meadow. Oh, nice. So did that get one star or five star? Uh, I'm going to say uh, one star. Okay. I'm going to say five. Um, can, I, can I go in the middle and can I say I thought they thought it was quite average, three. Because this isn't this this isn't the game, but okay. No, it's called the one star. <laughs> yeah, five am, I, star am I going off on my own? Oh yeah, sorry, it's called one star. You're one here star every week. Star. You should know this. Come on. I know. I'm a more, I'm an absolute. Yeah, I'm just five star. Five star, right? Linwood, you're right. You got it was one star. Oh. Um, one star. Oh. One star for the one star for the book and five for the seeds. Is that what it was? No, 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 one star for the seeds no, because. She thought that one small packet would cover a, a huge meadow, and she was disappointed that there weren't <laughs> enough seeds. These are the so people buying your books, Linwood. <laughs> here's my, here's my, here's my theory. Here's my theory. If you go to the trouble to write a review of seeds, it's only because you hate them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, can you see you sitting? You see sitting around with friends saying. Boy, we had some fabulous seeds uh, in the garden this week. And they said, well, we should write a review about that and put it on Amazon. That said, Linwood, you know, we've been in lockdown for nearly a year. Maybe it might get to that soon. Yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. It's very possible. I'm about, to have, I'm about to have my second birthday in lockdown. Oh. Carry on. Oh, man. Um, can I ask, uh, well, this is a point where we usually ask, what are you reading at the minute, Linwood? Uh, right this second, I am reading. I'm reading the Langoliers, a Stephen King story from 1990, I think it was. Um, I'm sort of reading, just started that. I just had, I had just read his book later, um, the new one that just came out. But mm. I've got uh, what did I just read before that? I, you know, it's funny that I've read so many books through the pandemic, more than usual, that I think, what did I read the other day? And yeah. and it's a struggle. I'm trying to think, what had I just read? I read Claire McIntosh's upcoming book, Hostage, not too long ago. And uh, I'm just looking to see if I can look on the shelf. What did I read lately? I can't. I don't know. You know, it's just sort of, <laughs> it's all a blur. But you know what I read and discovered in the last year? I had never uh, really read um, Philip Kerr's Bernie Gunther novels. Oh, yeah. And, and I had read one or one maybe before the pandemic. I have now read all of them. Wow. And through the pandemic, and I'm just like, wow, just a huge wow. And it's it's too bad we won't be getting more from him. It's it's. I was just. I would read. He's the kind of guy you read those books and you think, am I ever glad you don't have to be this good to get published? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Chris, are you having a similar thing with McCarran? Ah, uh, yeah. I've finished. I've finished the series now, and I'm devastated. All right. I absolutely got it. Is, yeah. is that what you're reading at the minute, Chris? Oh, no, you've finished, haven't you? I'm finished. You know what I'm reading. I'm reading you. Well, I was reading you. Uh, it took me all of about a day, even less. Um, <laughs> Rob is, brought, is bringing out um, uh, a sort of horror novel, and 
honestly, it, I tore through. I gave up lions, and yeah, it was just incredible. So yeah, uh, amazing, oh, and it's going to be thanks. huge. That's I think. my next. That's my next. Yeah, game. thank really you. Really good. Do, do I send Excellent. the Do I send the money to the usual account? Is that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Top up my beer. What, what? <laughs> so much, man. Uh, what about you, Vic? Um. People will have heard me say this before. I have to read a Kindle in bed so that I don't have the lamp on to disturb my husband. I read under the covers. So on my Kindle, I'm reading Anthrax Island by D.L. Marshall, due out in a couple of weeks. And um, my paperback for the bath is Call Me Mummy by Tina Baker. Oh, I've heard good It's very good, but as the mother of a young child, it's like I can only read a little bit and then I have to put it down because it's actually very visceral and quite um, horrible. But really well done, but it's just too much. Yeah. Oh, super. I would recommend. Um, Have you yeah, got I... a paperback of Anthrax Island there? No, I haven't. No, don't worry. Oh, I was just getting, yeah, arranging, <laughs> my, arranging my prop. <laughs> uh, no, um, for myself, uh, today I finished Find You First. So um, tonight I get to start uh, Dark Sky by CJ. Oh, Holmes. yeah. That's um, great. Is it good? Oh, I, I just um, No, no, I haven't read that one yet, but I mean, he's a very good writer. Yeah, he's, uh, he's yeah. Uh, it's, it becomes a yearly event, you know, when uh, one of his books comes out. So uh, yeah. yeah, really excited. Um, with with that, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Linwood. Uh, it was a it was a pleasure. Been. This was a lot of fun. You guys were just a blast. This was great. Oh, thanks it's so cool much. To meet you. Um, thank you. Yeah, I think um, for for our money, um, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, find you first is use that word bingeable before. You know, when you're competing. <laughs> Uh, find you first is extremely bingeable extremely thrilling um and is without doubt the work of an elite crime writer at the top of his game uh, Vic- and can i also just it's so far my book of 2021 oh, oh there you go there you thank awesome. you so much um, thank you thank it you is, so much. It is, let's just say it is kind of early in the year but i mean if this were if this were the first week of december i'd feel pretty good about it <laughs> I'll speak to you in the first week of December, Linwood, and just confirm. <laughs> um, Linwood, we we'll, we've got a bit of uh, a couple of moments of admin that we need to do, um, but um, we'll let you go now. So okay. uh, we'll say goodbye. Uh, it's thank been a you. pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very much. much. Thanks nice so to much. It's lots of fun, guys. Take care. Take see you later, have a great Sunday. Bye right. bye. Gosh, he was rather nice, wasn't he? Lovely man. What a lovely chap. Mm. And um, a little bit inspiring, mm. I dare say. <laughs> You know when they say never meet your heroes? That's been going through my head all day and actually never meet your heroes because you'll just be totally awestruck and then, yeah. Oh, just such a lovely man. I love those ones where they come on and you're like terrified and then they're just the coolest people and yeah. Yeah. Damn him for being such a dude. Yeah, isn't it annoying when when they're like amazing writers and lovely people? You just can't even hate them. You have everything. (laughs) Everything. <laughs> um, just moving slightly on. Uh, that was a good segue. Did you like that? Brilliant, brilliant <laughs> stuff. <laughs> moving been, on. Uh, Vic, you've been very, very busy, haven't you? I have. Um, since we closed the door to our virtual bar in December, Simon Buick and I have set up Bay Tales, Ooh. which is. Ooh. Oh, you did my woos now. <laughs> well, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. It was a natural <laughs> woo. And natural I love woo. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Bay Tales is um, a website which everybody can access, but there's also a members only area, which isn't rude. But um, <laughs> <laughs> 
It <laughs> I'd just like to clarify. Um, it has fiction and non-fiction and competitions. So there, there are some bits that only members can access. So um, every week we put up either a new piece of fiction or non-fiction. We've had some from Chris McDonald, for example. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Um, Rob Scrag, Roxy Key, Danny Marshall, Rachel Sargent, like honestly tons. We actually had a competition to win lunch with Anne Cleves once the world sorts itself out again, um, which has been won by David Bishop, I believe. So we just have to wait until we can go and have lunch now. Um, So it's like really, really cool. Um, It's £35 for the year, which I think is remarkable value. (laughs) personally speaking and in addition to that we also do um virtual events so our next one is on march the 31st featuring leslie cara lauren north and some dude called rob parker and talking to us about beyond writing so talking about books but also about things like podcasting yeah and vodcasting is that the right word their 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 video um Vlogcast oh, is so good. I know, I know they're lovely and they're so fun. Um, so I'm really, I think it'll be super cool. So every time we do a virtual event, we have like a panel or an interview. We also have a guest reviewer. So Chris McDonald's being our guest reviewer. I'm all over this we like also, a rash. God damn it. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, <laughs> and then we also have like a, a reading as well. So this month it's going to be Kate Quinn, who wrote Black Widows, which is a fantastic book I'm really excited for that so um but our virtual events just like vnap b they're they're actually free so we just ask people to donate if they can to help us with the costs but yeah that's baytales so um if you go to www.baytales.com you can find out some more information there can i just say on the back of that i like you sure can i'm a member and there's stuff on there for everyone like you say there's short stories and stuff mm. but there's also for writers tony hutchinson put on a couple mm. of videos that i watched this morning um so there's just all sorts of really cool extra stuff that is really i mean 35 quid for a year is nothing for for what you get so um yeah you should definitely sign up it's a really cool feature the thing is if you if you're paying for a streaming service every every month it's about eight quid so within three four months you'll have paid what for a year what you would pay for four months of streaming whereas like you say tony hutchinson's an ex chief superintendent of police mm. and so he gives some information on what not to do or what writers often get wrong and stuff like that in their fiction and there are other non-fiction articles on there as well which is just yeah something for everyone and also you, it's really you get nice. like money off like there's a scrivener yeah. offer and stuff like that isn't there there's money off scrivener you can get 10 percent off at forum books which is my local bookshop, but they post out as well. So um, it's, I just think it's a great deal, me, but I would. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love the idea, because um, this is the thing that excites, um, has always excited me the, the absolute most, is um, getting, you know, secret, like, works of fiction of your favourite authors. Mm. You know what I mean? That, that are only available here. You know, like mm-hmm. super exclusive short stories and, and, and more, you know. So I... Oh, it's wicked. It's absolutely wicked. I'm so excited about the 31st as well. Oh, me too. I really can't wait. I think we'll have such... Because uh, Lauren and Leslie are also... They're like a good laugh as well, aren't they? So I think we'll have a right giggle. 
Oh, I cannot wait. Um, well, thank you both very much. Yeah, um, thank and, you. Um, vi- wishing uh, Bay Tales uh, all every success. Uh, thank you. No doubt is incoming. Um, <laughs> thank you very much, everybody. Uh, thank you for I'll having have- me. No, I was, oh, Vic, you're the blood sister. Give over. TM. <laughs> TM, yeah. That made me laugh. <laughs> I told Linwood Barclay that, just so we know. Uh, I also profess my love for the much-hated film, The Village. <laughs> yes. Every time you say TM as well, when you were doing the introduction, I thought you were going to, it sounds like you are going to say TM, Logan. Logan. Yeah. Yes! And, and Logan is actually my married name, so... Oh, really really, don't add any of this to the pot. I will lose it. I will lose it. <laughs> I, I was literally about to sign off like I do like one of the other podcasts I'm involved with. You know, I was about to do their sign-off, not this sign-off. So I do need all the help I can get. So <laughs> um, on this one, we just do bye, don't we? Yeah. Oh... <laughs> Peace and love, baby. Don't send me any rubbish in the post. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. No, that's not the, that's not the sign-off for this one. That is. I'm pressing stop now, so that's it. <laughs> uh, bye. Bye. Sean's not going to let us do this again without him, is he? No, he's not. <laughs> no, he's not. Quite right. <laughs> <laughs>